Welcome to a brand new episode of Cold Chinese Food. I am your host, Aisha Redux. I am joined with Dr. Candice Nicole. She's a sex and racial trauma psychologist, and she founded the first ever racial trauma center in Lexington, Kentucky. So I've spoken to her before. I had a great talk with her. And uh, we need her now. This is all much needed information. And it's such a pleasure and an honor to have her here. Dr. Candice. Hey. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for introducing me. Of course. How are you feeling? Because I feel like people often enough, maybe I, I don't feel like they ask psychologists how they're doing. But here we care about how you're doing, how people <laughs> that are making us feel better, how they're feeling. How are you doing these days? I will say I tend to work with clients who do check on me and be like, so how are you doing today, Dr. Candace? And I'll be like, I'm, I'm all right, or I'm fine, or I'm well. So today is one of those days where I'm doing well. Okay. I got enough rest. I've had a slow and easy day. I'm just here folding clothes. My son is resting peacefully. Tell us, I guess, you know, of course, in your own words, what, what is racial trauma exactly? And how does it manifest? Racial trauma is like when the consequences of racist encounters stick with you and they have you suffering severely. So you might experience something racist and initially you get a reaction, but that passes. But because it's chronic, because racism is occurring so regularly, it builds up. And then when it builds up, you get sick physically and you get sick mentally if you don't have coping resources, if you don't have healing modalities, if you don't have support systems in place, if you don't deal with it in any way, it can build up and become racial trauma. Something I kind of wanted to know, are there any extreme measures you can take to kind of just like, just be done dealing with it? <laughs> hmm. I mean, psychologically, because I know physically you can't escape, can't escape the earth and you can't escape you know, where you are unless you can change your circumstance. But how do we, I mean, I just don't want to deal with it. And like my particular issue is always like, it's the microaggressions that eat at mm -hmm. me. It's not so mm -hmm. much watching television. Of course, that that definitely takes it over the edge. But the one-on-one -on -one encounters with yes. people that are like friends or associates or like, it's just like kind of like a mosquito biting at you. And like, mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. that's. Yeah. So my issue is like the microaggressions, because I know a lot of us are, you know, corporate America and we have to deal with it. So, so how, how do I escape this? Escape it. <laughs> 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 there are people who take very extreme measures. So they they try to deal with it in ways that are not adaptive. So a lot of people end up abusing substances because they're trying to escape it. Right. And so if you're high on something, you're not about to feel race, racial trauma. Ooh. And that will then have negative consequences on your health eventually. There are some people who are expats in other countries where they feel like people of color are more welcomed or treated better. Mm. So that's another extreme where they're like, you know, in the UK or the US or wherever, you know, wherever they are where they're experiencing racism. 
they're like, mm, this isn't, this is an environment for me. I'm about to just move to the Caribbean. I'm about to just move to Thailand. So there are some ways that people try to escape it. Both of those methods would be probably the two most extreme that I've wow. heard of, but they don't always work because imperialism and colonialism have racism impacting places where there aren't even white people. So you know, substance use can only make you feel numb for so long before it erodes you from the inside out. And moving away can only help you feel like you've gotten away from it for so long before you have some vicarious exposure or where somebody's internalized racism shows up and impacts you. So I don't think there's an escape to it. I think there is consistent resistance. Ooh, consistent resistance. Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means, but I feel like I needed to repeat it <laughs> before you explain it. Yes. <laughs> Just, it's the daily choices you make to resist when somebody microaggresses you. Uh -huh. um, and that resistance can look like a direct confrontation verbally saying, you know, I don't appreciate you talking to me like that or pointing out the microaggression or educating them on it, amplifying what they said in the meta communication under that. that those are all called micro interventions. But it can also be calling in an ally like, look, I don't even have the emotional energy mm. to deal with this today. And you, as my white colleague or my white friend said that you wanted to stand in the gap with me and be oh. in solidarity with me. I need you to holler at this person and bring your people along because what they said was hurtful. So that's another strategy. But it also can be, you know resistance movements that are going on all over the globe right now, whether it's frontline or whether it's doing a podcast like this or whether it's writing, that consistent resistance is what helps you feel well and like you have some ability to not feel overwhelmed by microaggressions and racism all the time. Wow. That that's amazing. That's amazing piece of information. My my issue, just like a lot of people, is that like I, I always I always got the smoke. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I'm always mm -hmm. on ready. And I don't know if that's something that has built up over time, you know, be between me growing into, you know, being someone who was more socialized to accept certain behaviors from white people right. and gaining in consciousness and deciding, wait, that's not OK. Is it always OK to react to everything that I am uncomfortable with? Or should I just kind of register some things as being, uh, I guess, trauma, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and not really what's going on at the moment? Like if, if, if I'm bothered, should I always react to it? And what does that look for look like in terms of friendships with people, you know, and, and just existing with white people? Yeah, I think know? it depends on what your reaction is. Right. OK. And so reactions can be your stomach getting tight, but you didn't say anything. You know, our bodies are going to react to racist encounters. But one of my colleagues, her name is Dr. Gioni Lewis. She talks about how Black women in particular have a strategy for navigating that. It's choosing our battles. And so okay. do you want to fight all the time? Yes or no. Uh -huh. Do you want to argue all the time? Yes or no. That's your choice. You can say, you know, today I got time and energy. And you can say some days, actually, I don't have time or energy. I feel a reaction rising in me, but that's not how I want to spend my time and energy. So I'm going to process that elsewhere. Neither are wrong. Neither are right or wrong. It really is a day-to-day -day choice about how you use your time and energy. Because sometimes you feel like, okay, I got smoke, but also you shouldn't get this education for free. So I'm not going to do it. Mm. Or some days you're like, hmm, I got smoke. 
And there are other people watching who I want to get this education, even though I wouldn't offer it to you uncompensated typically. So today you can have it. It really, there's no right or wrong to it. But if you find yourself reacting in a way that feels distressing for you, that feels out of character for you, then maybe you process that with your therapist or with some close friends about why you're reacting and how you're reacting in the same way, in the same way, time and time again, whether it's effective in the way you want it to be effective for you, not for them, because we don't have control over other people's behaviors. So our reactions aren't necessarily going to be corrective for everyone. Wow. Something that I noticed that I do, I, I, I don't, I've never really spoken to anybody about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to speak to you about it. You're a psychologist and other people <laughs> are going to listen and hear and know this. I sort of like reenact things later mm-hmm. in my mind. And so sometimes it's preoccupation. Oh, preoccupation. Okay. That would mm-hmm. happen like sometimes weeks, months, even like sometimes years before. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm a different person and I'm reacting to it the, the way I should have reacted to mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. I do that a lot. And it's a problem. And I'm like literally speaking out loud as I'm washing dishes or watching TV. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, is, is that normal or is it abnormal? Yeah, it's, it's normal. All of it's normal, but is it healthy for you is um, what you're what you're really wanting to get yes. to. So you might have a predisposition towards anxious features. Okay. And preoccupation is an anxiety sh- symptom, basically. Hmm. So when you think about something over and over again and you're processing it, your brain is trying to figure out how to feel some control over it, how to recalibrate after something that felt injurious. So you're thinking about it, you're processing it again and again, you're finding the just the right words you wish you would have said, or just the right tone or how you would have approached it. But the moment has already passed. And so every time you think about it, you get reactivated, like it's yes. still processing that stress. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's typically what happens when people have an anxious disposition. Doesn't mean you have generalized anxiety disorder, but you just have an anxious disposition where you're trying to solve it by controlling it. And I get why that happens. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to act like that's pathological all the time. Sometimes you do need to just think through it and process it. One strategy I suggest, though, is to write it down. Because when you are preoccupied with it mentally, which you do because you write books, you know, but (laughs) when you're preoccupied with it mentally, that takes up a lot of your emotional and cognitive resource. That makes it harder to concentrate on things that are important to you. That's exactly that's exactly Mm -hmm. A hundred percent of my issue is like mm-hmm. where my energy is directed. Yeah. And sometimes that's why like my writing is really passionate. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's why sometimes my Instagram posts are so fiery because yeah. like I'm reading something and I'm reacting to it. And it's like all of like, you know, people are, are reading it and they're feeling what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And I guess it stems from that preoccupation. And But do you find that if you write about it or post about it, you're less preoccupied or is it the same amount? I think it helps once I get like the fire out, mm-hmm, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It does. It's a That's fire and it's like a connection with people in particular. Mm-hmm. Where like, validation happens and they let you know you're not nuts for feeling the way you feel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like moments of vulnerability now, I guess I, I didn't even realize that this is something that I needed to talk to a psychologist about, you know, and yeah, this is also really helpful. I guess in delving more you know, as a black woman in this moment, what are some observations or troubling things that you've kind of noticed or or you'd like to address particular to black women? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like right now there's such a moment in, you know, 
black women leading the charge and there's so mm -hmm. much question behind it and there's this whole debate about divesting and yeah. how, like i just feel like it's a heavier load for us because i feel like there's also an awakening to who we are and women that didn't notice how much we actually do take on i feel like mm -hmm. now i'm looking at my mother differently yes and all the burdens that she had to bear and i'm looking at myself and it's kind of creating i guess something that kind of wants to divorce and dissociate from any of that like yeah. i don't want to be that woman i love my mother yeah. i don't want to be that woman i don't want to carry the burdens of black america i don't want to carry mm -hmm. the burdens of africa i don't want to carry mm -hmm. anybody's burdens so are there any observations and things that you know you think we should hear and know okay i have a few and that was really that really brought up so much for me as you were saying that one the people who murdered brianna taylor are still walking free and i think that's so salient for black women right now because she was at home in her bed asleep it's like fuck can we have peace that mm. i think is the general undertone of my experiences with the black women I'm in community with right now. It's like, can we have peace wow. in our home, in our bed? And then that translates to all of the other connections and relationships and investments we have in our communities and in our families and in our places of employment and in this nation and globally. So when you talked about seeing your mother differently, so I'm 37 and I have a newfound appreciation in the past few years for my mother and my aunts and my grandmother. So much so that sometimes I want to apologize for the disrespect mm. because as a teenager, I had a smart mouth. I still do. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I, I had a smart mouth because I had a critique of how she was living her life that was uninformed by what it means to be a Black woman in the United States. And my mother was a single mother with four children. And even though she was a single mother, she was able, because she's really bright and she's a warrior, to take us from the subsidized housing projects in a small town in Western New York to a suburb in Georgia by the time I graduated high school. Talking about walking to school, night school in the snow, three feet of snow and taking buses after she got off a factory job. Like that type of strength reality yeah. human being i had no appreciation for that and i think that's because i was socialized in sexism oh. socialized in misogynoir Ooh. we don't see the investments black women make in themselves and their children and their oh. community we don't value them we undervalue or devalue those things that go unseen but i know for sure that because my mother did that, other women in those projects said they could do it too. Okay. I watched it happen to my mm -hmm. aunties, like my play aunties and play cousins mm -hmm. around me. We're a whole group of them were like, you know what? Well, Brenda went to school. I think I can go to school. You know, and then they're, they're in their 50s now. And their lives look different than what the stereotypes about Black women say their lives should look like being really young single mothers. Same with my aunt. So I think about my aunt and my aunt, her name is Tanya. She's in, in a comatose state. And she's been in that way for four years because she had a near fatal asthma oh, attack. So she's in a, yeah, it's, it's, it is tragic because mm -hmm. she's the person who taught me joy, mm. taught me unconditional love and unbridled joy. 
And people don't see black women's joy and capacity for love and respect and cherish it. And you highlighted but, that for me once. Like yeah. I, you brought that up like black joy. I was like, wow, like you said black joy is like a form of resistance or it something. Is. Yeah. And she showed me she was pleasure activism for me before that was a, t- a book, before mm-hmm. that was. And I didn't see it or respect it or understand it until I became grown for real. For her to be like, girl, I'm about to go out here and party. You know, I'm about to kick it. She always used to be in the latest flyest stuff. And just, but her laugh was contagious. Just having that, that means that no matter how difficult the situation got around her, she was able to hold on to joy and hold on to that resistance of, I'm not going to be burdened. That what you were speaking about, how she wanted to live her life, I won't be burdened. I will still laugh and drink and smoke and kick it and and be fly and have fun. And I was always a very serious child. And now I realize how that toxic seriousness prevented me from really seeing how valuable she was to me, how liberated she was as a woman. And then I think about my grandmothers. And these are women who moved from Alabama as sharecroppers and used to work in people's houses and drive buses and stuff and wanted to come and migrate to the North for a better life. And I think about the things that they gave up. Both of them had to leave their children there for a while. You know, like those investments in creating a new home. People don't see that. The like sacrifices, yeah. The sacrifices. Yeah. But those are not, I don't see sacrifice in that way anymore. I see them as investments. Investments. Oh, I like that. Oh, wow. I think they built a portfolio. I like that. I like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that I can be here and be Dr. Candace. Oh, my God. That is, that. that's like, even hearing you say that, it just takes such a load off. Because, like, mm-hmm. I don't like, I don't like the, you know, the energy of pity. You know, like I see my mom as a strong woman. I don't want to pity her. You know what I mean? So I feel like when you when you look at it as as investments that they made for you and Mm -hmm. also the lineage and and the the future, you know, your son Mm -hmm. and my invisible kid somewhere Mm -hmm. floating in somebody's pants, you know, like (laughs) it's an investment, you know, it's an investment because my grandma said at my my Spelman graduation, she said I wiped asses for 20 years so you would never have to. Okay. When some when somebody tells you they gave twenty years. Oh man. Oh man. Of patiently waiting on older white people so that you would never have to. That's an investment. She wasn't pitying herself. She don't have an ounce of pity in her. All she has is fight and life and energy in her in her near eighties. And she was like, I did that. I had intention behind that. That's Ah. investment. When you have intention, that's investment. Sacrifice. I just, I don't use Hmm. that framing on it anymore. I'm going to get rid of that too. Mm -hmm. I'm done with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it helps you feel like I don't got to take on the burdens of the world. I like that. I like that. And that, that, you know, mantra, I guess I'll use it. I will not be burdened. You said that Mm -hmm. a couple of times. I'm definitely taking that on now. I'm, I'm seeing such a, I guess now is the moment there's a dichotomy between this old school that you you described the old school that we come from and then there's such an extreme new school i don't know if you're familiar with like the femininity movement mm-hmm. say it, more about that it's it's uh it's black women that have completely 
I would say turn their backs on the traditional roles that have been placed in, you know, the muling quote unquote yeah. of black mm-hmm. women in America. They're kind of honoring their femininity and they yeah. also bring up bring up often the fact that they don't they don't think that the world and, and black men see their femininity. Mm-hmm. And it's something that they kind of make a point. But it's highlighted a lot by the divesting away from from activism and quote unquote refusing to get your head bashed in, you know? Mm. These these are two things that are just kind of really stark and I'm and I'm seeing. And there's a lot of that content online. It's I mean it's informative, but I don't think that it nece- it's informative and it's needed, but it's it's so far in another direction that I'm not quite sure. But it is about okay. kind of reclaiming and assuming this this femininity that black women that's been sort of stolen from them, you know? And I kind of wanted to know if that was in also a a product of racial trauma somehow, you know, totally going in this other direction. And I think all extremes are ways to cope. Okay. I think there's, I mean, I don't want to say it's extreme for Mm -hmm. anyone who, you know, who's in practice of that right now. A lot of black women are, it's, it's, it's really heavy right now. I think you should, you should, check it out i mean okay i'll check it out but when i say extreme i don't mean that the behavior is pathological i just mean it's so different Uh going in a different direction and i think that all of those are ways to cope with something but i don't know what it is it could be the way they're coping with gendered racism or sexism or misogynoir it could be the way they're coping with racism in isolation also classism you know so i I don't know because i don't know enough about it to say what it's about. Like I haven't read enough about it, but I can talk about my own journey coming to understand and appreciate femininity and how I redefine that. Yes. I felt like femininity was weak for a long time. I felt like it was weak and it wouldn't get me the things I desired in life. Mm -hmm. And so I think the way people understand black women and femininity together it makes room for women who are operating in this new found femininity to be like, Mm-mm, I don't want to be treated like that. So this is what I'm expecting and I'm going to honor my divine feminine. I think there's room for that. I think there's room for people who are on the front lines willing to get their head bashed in too. Okay. So I think all of those are necessary parts of a unit because we're not a monolith. We need to show up in all of those ways because I agree, I agree. Liberated by one, the other, or both. Yes. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly what I was thinking too. Like, there's no one right or wrong way to be black, you know. No, not but at I all. feel like with being black, you know, there's there's always kind of like a person or a group of people trying to teach you the best way to be black. You know what I'm saying? And there's no necessarily like there's no one really out. There's not that many people teaching you the right way to heal from being black. How do I deal with being black? You're telling me how Mm -hmm. to be black. But like, how do I how do I exist and cope with this blackness that that is upon me? You know? Yeah. Tell me about the layers of racial reaction. I love this. So when you experience a racist encounter in person or vicarious racism. So that means watching a video, which I don't do anymore, you know, or hearing about somebody else's experience with racism 
people typically have three types of reactions and they may have more than one, but they're usually organized according to my research in three. They can have a somatic reaction and we call the somatic reaction letting out. So that could mean like you're crying, uh, your body is shaking, you feel your heart rate increase. It's harder to breathe. Like you are having a somatic or physiological reaction to the race, the racist stressor, whatever it is. And then you could also have an emotional reaction. So the emotional reaction we call sitting with, and that could be rage or anger or sadness. That could be disappointment. That could be heartbreak. That could be apathy. That could be numbness. Any range of emotions are normal reactions to racism where you are hurt, where you feel injured, or you're trying to feel nothing at all. A lot of people try to navigate their anger by downplaying it because there's so many stereotypes mm. and polls oh, yes. on Black people about having anger. But anger is a really righteous catalyst to change. So I never minimize the importance of it. It just is not something you always want to sit with. So you have to figure out whatever balance works for you. And then the last reaction, it's a cognitive reaction. Well, we call that rising above. So this is a reaction you'll see. And it's more common, I'd say, among people who have gone through extra years of education where you think you can outsmart it. You think you can explain it away. Sometimes you might even find yourself justifying racist actions. But what, what the rising above strategy is, is typically, what's my best example? Where you hear somebody say something racist and then you dismantle their entire argument intellectually. This is what I was going to ask you. Mm -hmm. What is Candace Owens? <laughs> is, is this is this part of that? Like, is this the rising above thing when you you have like black people that are obviously living in America as it's burning? Or is this kind of like is is, is this a coping mechanism? Is it a way of of, of like just achieving the American dream? Is it like a capitalist, you know, journey? Like when you, when you as a psychologist mm -hmm. watch someone like Candace Owens, what do you see? I've been thinking about her a lot. I really have. I have, I have the capacity to hold empathy for the Candace Owenses of the world because I understand internalized racism. I understand how, investing in these concepts that whiteness gives us about who is valuable and who is not valuable can really help you lie to yourself or buy into narratives that are stereotype, stereotypic tropes about Black people. And I understand how that intersects with capitalism and classism such that your proximity to these white ideas can sometimes allow you access to resources that would be harder to gain access to without uh, endorsing these stereotypes about yourself, about your culture and your community. And I think she's also angry. I mean, just watching her videos, she has a lot of anger. Maybe she has experienced people who are in the black community reacting understandably angrily to the things that she's saying. Maybe she's been called acting white when she was growing up. And maybe she's been outcasted from other black girls because she doesn't know how to take care of her hair and all of these things that black girls sometimes go through. And her reaction to that was to withdraw. 
as opposed to approach and understand or move along her own Black racial identity development. So for me, it looks like a person who's angry, but who doesn't want pity, a person who's invested in classism and elitism in some ways, who is believing that proximity to ideas that white people created about black people will benefit her. And then we have some evidence that they have already benefited her based on her following. So you get attention through that. You get a name for yourself. You get status. And that can help you feel worthy when maybe you don't already. And I I think I have a I don't appreciate the shit she says. None of it. I don't don't appreciate it because I think a lot of her messages is repeating things that are injurious to black people and they Mm -hmm. paint black people as a monolith, even as she shows herself to be not like what she thinks these ideas of blackness are. And I wish she were exposed to black people who she would be willing to hear from. And I wish she were exposed to white people who would care about her, even if she wasn't a like spouting, uh, spouting like negative racist tropes and Republican. It's kind of like conditional support. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's it, like what kind of support is it actually? Like what does that even mean? Her story actually kind of reminds me a little bit of a lot of like Sammy Davis Jr., mm-hmm. someone whose life I you know I I was listening to on on a podcast, a Malcolm Gladwell podcast, when he was like a teenager or something, a group of white, white kids painted the word coon on his body. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he like, you know, he, he brushed it off. And I guess he he vowed to himself that he would never feel this ever again. Yeah. And the way he, he dealt with that was totally assimilating, mm-hmm. assimilating hardcore to, to the, yeah. the point that he became a Nixon supporter. And like best mm-hmm. friends with Nixon, and and it's, a, it's such an interesting story of a man who like who who still kind of donated and contributed to the cause, the civil mm-hmm. rights movement, but was was just so well well versed in in the white world that he became part of the Rat Pack, and I don't know, I just feel like America has a way of dealing. I, I could say black men in particular, because mm-hmm. men have you know acquired the power before the the woman, yeah. but they turn people into OJs, you know, like there, mm-hmm. there's like a spin cycle, you know, like, and it seems like no one seems to kind of be aware that there's like a matrix matrix in a system, you know, like there's a power that's given to them. And, and then it just kind of just seems to turn into like a mess at the end. I don't know if it's because it's I wonder athletes. how that's my thing. I wonder how it ends. Some people go through that process and then they end up really critically conscious on the other side of it. And some people go through that process and it, you know, they die like Herman Cain. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't don't even know. Wow. Like, (laughs) I I guess like my mind still hasn't processed that. I feel like after he died, I tried to focus on, you know, the positivity and the fact that he was a very self-made man and he wanted Mm -hmm. to assume his blackness. And, you know, he just had a, a different ideology that, about America that, you know, black people can focus on. But the fact that he did die, you know, as like a Trump martyr is something yeah. that I'm still not ready to process. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that's what I'm sitting with. And I, I'll say I'll say this. My own racial identity development journey is one that when I was younger, 
I would I would say I did probably want to be white. You know, I was raised in a predominantly white area. Mm-hmm. I learned what whiteness meant and what it gave you access to. I understood the codes that white people used, uh, the linguistic style that white people used, and that afforded me. I, I'm smart in the way white people think people should be smart. Just was born that way. And so that afforded me access to honors classes, which give you resources that kids in the general population of the school don't get opportunities that kids weren't afforded if they weren't already identified as gifted and talented. And I wanted to wear my hair straight all the time. I, all of those pieces that I see in internalized racism, I experienced. Now I mm-hmm. grew out of them. I moved through my own racial identity development was that through books or relationship? Because I feel Both. like I had, okay. Both. It was okay. certainly through books. Books first. Okay. Um, and then again, like I said, role, the role models around me, like my aunt who was always, oh, your skin is so pretty and black. Ooh. You know, like just those, those words stick with me eventually. They stuck with me eventually. But then I went, you know, I read Maya Angelou. I read Toni Morrison reading the bluest eye and unpacking that for yourself at 16. Oh yeah. Reading. I know why the king bird sings and unpacking that. self. all of those things kind of built upon my identity development. Then I went to Spelman, which is a whole world created for black women. Ah. And it was like, here's the language young black woman to understand what you've been going through for 18 years. That's amazing. Oh, and then, you know, you, you move along, but some people don't have that experience. And so maybe they get stuck there. I had, a very, I guess, very unique experience from most people. And I think... What was it like? I mean, like, where I am now, I'm actually starting to understand. Because my, I grew up first generation. My father was a diplomat, and then he became an art dealer. And we grew up... I grew up on the Upper West Side, and it was a... you know, what is we, that? Like, 72nd, but it was... <sighs> Upper West Side, it's... Give me what that means. It, it's it's, it's kind of like a middle middle upper class kind of you know part of manhattan right so we i grew up there and we're one of the only few black people in our building right but my father was an antique african art dealer so our home was very much black and and Mm -hmm. very africana and like the people that came and bought his art were like wealthy europeans and africans and just kind of like cultured people Mm-hmm. And my mother was very in- indigenous, like, you know, she didn't really speak English if she didn't have to. And she cooked mm-hmm. African food all day. And we had these Polish door people. And my father was really arrogant and very kind mm-hmm. of like he, he was a connoisseur and very educated. So he had so much pride and knowledge about about blackness mm-hmm. and, and inside kind of like a world that was white that he never tried to assimilate to. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. happened was that kind of created with me like uh, an ease about myself. Yes. And it started like the way I relate to people is is was less about race, but more about culture. Like, mm-hmm. what do you know about this? What do you know about that? And that's how I found that more or less the world related to me as a black woman, unless I was in environments where the blackness was too much for them. And mm. it was just kind of a, a problem. So this ease kind of created just like a sense of security with me that I think didn't always work to my advantage because 
I would find myself in, in spaces with other black people that felt like they had to compensate and had to kind of had to please the white people and had to kind of come off a certain way. And I never cared because my father never cared, you know, and he acquired everything that he had in life. And I grew up where I did on the Upper West Side without having to please black white people, you know. So that's something that that kind of created like a reality where I'm kind of looking at people and I'm seeing other black people where they're coming from. I'm seeing white people like it's 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 very an interesting thing and I just realized how important to me I mean my message is the fact that like my father affirmed blackness mm-hmm. so much and he would have photographs of like black women and just like that he would tear out of magazines and leave them around so to me that's what I mean that's what my father thought was the most beautiful and yes he was around a lot of these amazing art- artists and people and he told to me as a little girl the reason why I didn't marry a white woman cuz I didn't like the way they aged mm. and I always <laughs> remember that <laughs> it is so fucked up but it's like okay well to me black was just always beautiful so like mm-hmm. I had to kind of I'm not saying unlearning, but it's something I had to I, I held on to so tight until like I got older and people were like, what are you talking about? Black women or this black women or that like this is where it's at, you know, so it's it's me just trying to make sense of this world. I'm like, I mean, I wish everyone kind of had this this experience. No, I that I had. That. That's what I'm that's what I'm creating for my son. And the the books he reads, mm-hmm. all of them have faces that look like the range of blackness like the things we I mean he's not even two but that's what we read you know like the the shows we watch on tv the music we listen to the art we go when we went to South Africa before he was one like he is being exposed to the best thing we can think of at this moment so that even though he's got to navigate a very white city like Lexington he navigates it knowing his full, valuable, worthy self as a ah, black boy. Yes. That he walks into the room and doesn't cower, doesn't shrink from them, that he recognizes his brilliance and his beauty in everything he does, that it can't be snatched from him or eroded within him because he'll always get the message of how beautiful and unique and wonderful he is all around him. Like, I hope that he walks through the world. And I don't think, I think cocky is a coping mechanism, but I think confidence Mm -hmm, (laughs) is is necessary. It's a survival, like for your survival. So when you walk through the world like that, like I don't have to adapt. I can choose to, if I would like to, I go to a Francophone African country and I speak French because I would like to adapt. That's one thing, but feeling like I have to, I don't want him to ever feel that. I mean, you've already, I mean, he has a mom who's a doctor, (laughs) a black doctor and a racial trauma specialist. I mean, psychologist. So that's that's already a lot. So you're there. Hey, I mean, listen, (laughs) we will do our best. I can say that. So sex, because you are a sex psychologist. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite things to talk about. Tell tell us how sex and racial trauma correlate, and I mean, if if it's anything that we know how to do in this world, it's it's have sex. So let's how how can we how can we heal from it with it? I, 
I think we can we can use sex for healing and we also can use sex as a way to numb out from the pain that we experience from racial trauma. So some people might develop compulsive sexual behaviors because they want to feel numb. They don't want to feel anything. But some people are really understanding how valuable and useful and sacred sexual pleasure is. And so it's like you go into the moment and you honor the bodies that you're with, the body you have and the body or bodies that you're sharing that moment with. And if you're two Black people in particular, just loving and enjoying and pleasing each other is a revolutionary act mm-hmm. where you're thinking, wow, this is a discarded, abused body in our society. Mm-hmm. But here I am beholding it and bearing witness to it and offering it pleasure or receiving pleasure from it, not to exploit it, but to, you know, worship, honestly. like It's like to, ritualized, ooh, like, I guess, wow. Okay. It could be, it could be, you know. And so I think it's it's it can be used for healing, but it also can be used to avoid dealing with stuff. There's you know, there's good and bad with everything. It also can show up in who we choose as sexual partners and who we don't choose as sexual partners. Ah, oh wow. So when we think about colorism. Ooh, let's let's and- get into colorism, please. What are your takes <laughs> on what's going on with that? Because I always have a lot to say and I feel like Quite frankly, I feel like black men don't want to hear it. And it causes, I mean, that that's something that kind of causes a lot of disillusionment with me mm-hmm. when it comes to being a black woman who, who is vocal and, and, you know, protective of black people. But I feel like I'm not necessarily getting the same amount of, you know, vocalized protection when it comes to certain aspects or even just trying to heal things within the community that are mm-hmm. obvious. So yeah. that's, that's an issue for me. So what are you, what's your take on that? Some bodies have status associated with them and some bodies have ridicule associated with them. And Can you repeat I, that? Because yes. that, yes. <laughs> I think some bodies have status associated with them and some bodies have ridicule associated with them. And so depending on what generation you grew up in, what region you grew up in, uh, what gender you express as that may or what social class you you have that may be different and i i i I get where you're going with when it comes to heterosexual relationships but i think it plays out across Mm. relationship types regardless regardless of sexual identity so when i grew up in the late 80s mid late 80s and early 90s Every girl wanted to talk to a boy that was light-skinned. And then the late 90s and early millennium, it switched. And all the dark-skinned men were in vogue and getting them. So there was the DeBarges and there was the Genuines and all of that early ah, on. That's true. that's true. And they were getting all the play, men with baby hair. I never so, noticed that. But that's exactly what it, what it was. Like, you know. And then it shifted. And then it was Wesley Snipes and Tay Diggs and Morris Chestnut. Mm. And they were getting they were getting all the play. And so I think that colorism serves a specific demographic of people who are lighter skinned that are associated with proximity to whiteness. And that's our lineage in the United States. But I think it functions back and forth, depending on the generation for men, for women that has never changed. 
So I think there are men out there, especially men who are dark skinned, who remember being ridiculed and then coming into vogue or light skinned men who remember being in vogue and then going into ridicule. I don't think women have had that same path. I think women who are lighter skinned have always been Mm -hmm. regarded as status enhancing bodies and women who are dark skinned may have experienced being regarded as bodies of contempt or bodies of ridicule. Now that doesn't mean they've never been loved. I feel very Mm -hmm. well loved and have always had people who are attracted to me, but Mm -hmm. in our media, who plays, who plays the beauty, who plays the desired one. I think for women that hasn't, that landscape hasn't changed in the way it has for men. I think that's a very important distinction that you made, especially how you made it. Cause I've had, I guess, debates with people, you know, women sometimes that tell me that it's, it's really, it's colorism isn't a thing. It's, you know, it's all in a state of mind, I guess, cause they don't necessarily feel like they've been affected by, it or they don't kind of want to cop to being affected by it. But once you said that, you know, the media versus your own personal feelings of being love is, mm-hmm. is totally different. Wow. What are some things you think we should know right now? How should we equip ourselves with this moment? And then tell us about your journal. I think we should know right now, Black people in particular, I think you should. we should know right now that we are inherently worthy, always have been, always will be. Like you were just born onto this earth worthy. It doesn't matter what you do, Black people who are free and will always be free, Black people who are incarcerated, Black people who are poor, Black people who are wealthy, Black people who are able-bodied, Black people who are disabled, all of it, Black people who are queer, always been worthy. Came into this world worthy, will always be worthy, but the world will try to convince you and treat you otherwise. So don't buy into those myths and lies about who you are. Operate in the fullness of your worthiness. And I understand how difficult that is. understand how painful it is and what you come up against when you try to operate in confidence, what you come up against when people think you're out of your place, out of your station, but do it anyway. Ah, I love that. I think now is the time to relinquish all the things that we are afraid of. And there are real terrors in this world. Like there are real people who are terrorists burning down communities and shooting people and murdering people. Like, I don't ever want to pretend like that doesn't exist. But terrorism is a tool to get you to feel so afraid that you don't even try. Mm -hmm. Fuck it. People going to die anyway. Like, let's be about our liberation. Do the thing. Say the thing. Speak truth to power at whatever level you can risk right now. Some Some of us are ready to put our lives on the line. And some of us can't yet because we have responsibilities that are tied to us. Some of us are ready to put our jobs on the line. Mm -hmm. And some of us can't yet because we have other resources that are tied to us. Some of us are ready to put our relationships on the line and Mm -hmm. our feelings on the line and our resources on the line. Put something on the line, though, for your liberation, because that's what facilitates your wellness. Oh, I love that. So that's what I would leave with. And your journal. Yes. So I have a journal. It's called, first of all, 
It's for black women in particular who are experiencing anger because of racism, but they also don't want to lose their jobs. And so they need a place to process it. And I use humor, but I use also some of our racial trauma theory and racial identity development theory to help process it. So you have things in there like, you know, your nerve meter, like how many nerves did they get on today? Chart that. Oh, wow. And then did they get on your black nerve? Because those are the most prized ones. <laughs> You know, things like that. But then I also have, okay, so under the anger, what feeling is there? Was it sadness? Was it insult? Was it disrespect? And for you to really process like, okay, I'm angry in this moment, but no, really I'm hurt. I feel hurt in this moment. And why do I feel hurt? So processing that it's some of the stuff that I do in therapy, but everybody can't have access to me therapeutically just because of licensing laws and personal capacity. So it's something that I have available on my website. You can just Google Dr. Candace Nicole and first of all, and it'll come up for sale. You can get a hard copy or a digital copy. Yes. And I'm getting a couple copies, you know, for me, for my friends. And I've been having technical issues getting that. But listen, it's I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. Hopefully, you know, it'll be sorted out so everyone else can get a copy. This is this is definitely what we need right now. This is our moment where we're we're dealing with so much grief on top of everything. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Candice Nicole. It's always amazing, refreshing, Thank and for enlightening me. to have you. It's always a joy to be with you, to chop it up with you. Like we have good conversations, good back and forth. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a Gifted Sounds podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. For more podcasts, please visit giftedsounds.com. You got the Chinese food.